Hey there, welcome to another episode of The Quantified Body. I'm your host, Damien Blenkinsop. Today's topic, every diet you've heard of, ketogenic, low-carb, paleo, low-calorie, and so on, makes the assumption that we are all the same, that our bodies respond the same to whatever we eat. This also goes for most of the research that is done on diets and their impact on the body. So most studies are looking at the average impact of a diet or nutrients. So they try to understand what a diet or food does to an average person. But the question is, are any of us average people? Are you an average person? And will your body respond to inputs in the same way as an average person? You know, I've personally found that collecting personal data for myself to be more useful to me than following average studies, following the recommendations that come out of the studies that are looking at a statistical human person rather than a real individual person. So rather than being the exception to the rule, I found that my own data often doesn't follow study results. It's unique to me and leads to unique decisions and actions for me. And it's really most valuable when your own data shows something different than what the study is looking at. Statistical humans, average people are looking at when it's different to general practice or common wisdom and what they say is best for you. So today we're looking specifically at how personal your blood glucose response and regulation is, your glucose metabolism. And we're looking at how it can differ between each person and how it differs based on typical measures we may use like the glycemic index. So that's one of the things that people use to decide which foods they're going to eat and so on. We're going to cover topics today like should everyone's diet be personally tailored to them? Is any one diet or approach ever going to be the best option for anyone? To what extent the gut biome versus other factors are responsible for our different blood glucose responses to food? How things like artificial sweeteners can modify the microbiome and impact blood glucose regulation over time differently? How the yo-yo dieting failures, so that's when basically you constantly regain weight after going on diets, these may be related to a person's microbiome. Why foods like ice cream do not raise blood glucose in many people as we'd assume. How the new microbiome testing service day two is delivering insights into reducing blood glucose spikes and improving average blood glucose levels. And much, much more. Today's episode brings together a few areas we've discussed in the past. You may find it helpful to do some background listening on previous episodes before digging into this one. So I'm thinking about the blood glucose metabolism episodes, that's episode 43 on continuous glucose measurement, and episode 28 on biomarkers of aging. We discussed blood glucose as a biomarker of aging in that episode. On microbiome testing and its use, we also have some episodes that are relevant to this one. Episode 9 on quantifying the microbiome with Ubiome, and episode 37 on health impacts of the microbiome. That was with uh, Robert Knight, a well-known researcher. Today, we have a two-part episode with two guests. We have Eran Segal, who heads up the Segal Lab, which undertakes research in computational and systems biology, focusing on nutrition, genetics, microbiome, and gene regulation and their effects on health and disease. This lab has released a series of studies over the last years on microbiomes and how they may be impacting blood glucose regulation. These studies have been heavily featured in mainstream press because they put into question a lot of our assumptions of how diets and foods work and how they impact blood glucose. He earned his PhD from Stanford in 2004, and in 2011, he was made a professor at the Weizmann Institute of Science, which is very well known in Israel. Our second guest is Lihi Segal, uh, same last name, but no relation, just a coincidence. And she is CEO and co-founder of Day2 which is the new microbiome lab testing and personalized diet recommendation service that has licensed and is applying the research from the Sega lab on the microbiome. Lihi has held a series of CFO and COO positions in startups over the years. Previously, she was COO and CFO of CSense Limited, a provider of business intelligence and analytics software. So it's a good fit there. She holds an MBA from Northwestern University. As usual, to get the show notes for the episode, just go to thequantifiedbody.net and pick out the episode there. There are links to everything mentioned in the show, including the studies we've discussed, and easy to take away and apply summaries of the biomarkers, tracking tools, and tactics we covered in today's show. 
If you want to get that in your email inbox, every time a show comes out, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and you'll get all of that in your email inbox every time we put an episode out. Now, please enjoy this two-part interview with Eran Segal and Lihi Segal. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Welcome to both Aaron and Lihi Segal onto the call. Thank you very much for joining us. So I just wanted to jump straight into it, uh, your research on the glucose response and uh, all of the other stuff you've been doing the last couple of years, really, because it's all kind of related. Why did you focus on the blood glucose topic in particular? That's a really good question. And um, when we started a few years ago, we wanted to take a science-based approach to nutrition. And we and we thought very hard about, about that problem and what we should examine. And uh, if you think of the most uh, common approaches, when we looked at most studies in nutrition, they usually consist of some dietary intervention, and then they look at weight loss or they look at uh, you know a change in, in some marker of a disease. Uh, and that's great because ultimately these are the parameters that, that we'd like to have an effect on. But the challenge we found with this approach is that uh, it then takes weeks or months for these parameters to change, you know, a parameter that measures your diabetes level or, or weight. And, uh, and at the end of this, you get, you get a single measure. It takes weeks or months to change. And that measure is affected by multiple things that happen to you during those weeks or months, both the diet intervention that you give, but also many other factors unrelated, which can be then confounding to what you're measuring. So we thought that maybe one of the reasons that it's very hard to do nutritional research and why many researchers are failing is because they're looking at this single measure affected by many things. So we didn't want to go that way. It's also, even if you see an effect, you're not sure you can attribute it to the diet. And if you don't see an effect, it's very hard to troubleshoot what, what went wrong. So we thought very hard about this and that led us uh, to look at glucose levels. And more specifically, the glucose levels after a meal, what's called a postprandial glucose response or a post-meal glucose response. So by that, what I mean is what your blood glucose levels look like in the two hours after you eat a meal, which we can also quantify using the area under the glucose curve into a single measure representing the response that you had to that meal. Right. So that's like the total area under the curve is it's kind of like the total amount of glucose that was in your bloodstream during that area of time. Is that the Yeah, that, I, I think you, you can think of that that okay, that's an, an approximation. I'll tell you in a moment what what we really are hoping that this is actually measuring. But that's quantifiable into a single into a single measure. But now we have to we have to think about three aspects uh, or, or there, there were three features of this that really led us to conclude that this is what we want to follow. So in a nutshell, what they are is that we were convinced by all the existing literature that this post-meal glucose response is really key to weight management. It's really key to disease, diabetes, but not only diabetes. I'll talk about those. And finally, and not least importantly, that it's very easy to measure. And it's something that not within weeks or months, but within a week, we can obtain not one, but even 50 quantitative measures of healthy nutrition in a single individual. So first, why is it important for weight loss and weight management? This is very basic, and, and there's been a lot of literature on this. When we eat, and I'm talking about healthy people, or I mean, even people who are glucose intolerant, but let's say not um, insulin-dependent type 1 diabetics, when we eat, our body digests the carbohydrates in the meal, releases them to the bloodstream, and after that, there is a response of the body by secretion of insulin, whose job is to lower the glucose levels. But in addition, uh, what insulin signals also is it signals the cells to uptake the sugar that's floating around in our blood. And then uh, excess sugar is then converted into fat for storage because it initially is converted into storage as glycogen. But our stores of glycogen are highly limited. And so very fast, the remaining will be stored as fat. And this is actually known as one of the primary mechanisms by which we gain weight. In other words, this action of insulin. So 
in a sense, we would have liked to even measure directly at a continuous way insulin, but that's technically not possible. But in healthy people, and there's been a lot of research, by measuring glucose levels, you're actually looking at a proxy for a measurement of insulin. And there's been works showing, for example, that if you eat a meal that spikes your glucose levels compared to a meal that does not, then after a meal that does not, you have more oxidation of fat, more burning of fat. And so the connection to weight loss is very well established. There's also a lot of literature looking at uh, very low-carb diets, which um, I think as a dietary regimen, it's not it's in, incompatible with life for most people. But But if you look at some of the studies, when you eat a low-carb diet, your glucose levels are low, and in general, those have the most beneficial effect on weight loss. So that's item number one, why we focused on blood glucose levels, because it's very important for, for weight loss and weight management. The second is disease, and the most obvious is, is, of course, diabetes. In fact, diabetes is diagnosed and defined by glucose levels. It, it's defined in two or three different measures, either by the hemoglobin A1C, which measures your average glucose over a period of three months, or by the glucose levels that you have two hours after you eat a meal, so something very similar to what we're measuring. And so, of course, you directly are playing with and improving the measures by which you diagnose diabetes. And so by that, we can manage better the disease, manage it better in pre-diabetics, even possibly reverse it in this population, and of course, for all the people with normal glycemic levels, we can prevent or delay onset of, uh, of diabetes. So that's one area where it's important. But then separate from diabetes, there's been a lot of links to cardiovascular disease, to cancer. So in cancer, we also know this is known as the Warburg effect. Uh, we know this for 90 years that cancers have a very different metabolism that much more heavily relies on glucose. And so the thought is that by uh, limiting the amount of glucose that, uh, that you provide, you differentially affect the growth of cancer cells compared to normal cells. So, and there's been associations in the literature between blood glucose levels and, and cancer. There's also been associations to overall mortality. There was one paper who tracked over 2,000 people for 30 years showing that if you responded more highly to a glucose challenge 30 years ago, you'll live longer, basically. So there's been links to many diseases, and so we're very confident that it also has a strong association to disease. And the final point is what I made uh, before, that uh, because of the technologies with continuous glucose monitors, we can now really in a single week measure 50 quantitative measures of healthy nutrition, and they're quantitative of healthy nutrition because of the two points I made before. So, so you felt that it was basically the continuous glucose monitor was a game changer because you'd be able to gather a lot more data quickly and eliminate some of these potential variables coming in from the longer term studies, which you can't avoid. Absolutely. So, so if you think about it, we actually focused on uh, examining the direct effect, one of the ways by which food directly affects you, and this is your glucose levels. And uh, from everything I, I mentioned before, we also believe that this is really a very critical clinical marker for weight loss and disease. Right, right. Okay, great. So you, you focused on the post-glucose response to, to meals uh, specifically, but you did mention hemoglobin A1c. Is that something else you tracked and you found useful in these studies? So, so that's something that, uh, that we measured. We found it useful mm -hmm. for predicting how different people respond to different foods, but it's not something that you measure as a direct effect of a meal. It's, it's one of those single parameters that takes many weeks to change that, again, would be very hard to develop a dietary regimen that would affect that directly because of all the confounders that I mentioned before. So in fact, glucose levels is, is, as far as we know, the only reliable quantitative measure that is really super relevant that we could track. That's why we focused on it. Great. And so you mentioned the area under the curve is, is the part that you're interested in. So I'm guessing that you're looking at some kind of benchmark of what's okay and what goes too high in terms of that area. You said to me when, you know, when I get, tried to give some kind of analogy to explain that to the audience, that, that isn't quite right. How would you explain the utility of, of that? I think that's, uh, we can just say that it's basically looking at your glucose response and it's quantifying how much you, you're, you, you had spikes for glucose levels after the meal. And, and these spikes, as I mentioned before, is what uh, is, is strongly linked to everything else. Great. All right. Thank you very much.
How did you find the continuous glucose monitoring technology? Did you use a specific device and how sensitive, accurate did you find it? There's various monitors out. We've, we've spoken about these before. And I know people who have been using them and actually for diabetes management and so on. So I was just interested in your opinion on the basically where that technology is right now, if research can be improved maybe later as it advances or is it already as good as it's going to get uh, so so i think it was uh it was very good for our purposes not without problems but i think even even finger pricking is problematic and, and can be variable but uh there is also progress uh, there's a recent device by abbott that uh we're now shifting to to using because it's uh it's more convenient mainly it, it's probably as accurate prob- possibly even with higher accuracy, that's what the company claims, uh, but it's, it's just much more convenient. It doesn't require the finger pricking uh, anymore. But overall, overall, they definitely capture the trends. And I will say that when we measure responses to 50,000 meals, you really have a very large data set and you can afford to have some inaccuracies here and there, which all the technologies have. And still you correct for that in, in the algorithms. Great, right? thank you for that. Moving on a bit to what you discovered is actually driving these blood sugar regulation changes. What are the examples of the kind of most unexpected things that you saw in the data? Are you talking about the factors that affect or even just before the surprising responses that people had? I'm interested in both. If we start with what you saw, maybe that you weren't expecting and then what you think drove that or what you discovered drove that. So the first key result of the study was that, and this was initially very surprising, that we saw that when you give different people the exact same meal, they have very, very different responses. And this is in contrast, if you eat the same meal on two different days, which is what we've tested on an unprecedented scale of 1,000 people, this is 7,000 different meals uh, standardized that we provided. When you eat the same meal on two different days, your response is gonna be very similar. But when you and I will eat the same food, our responses will be dramatically different. You can eat bread and have zero response, and I can eat bread and have a higher response than what I would have if I even ate pure sugar. So it's really, it was really kind of all over the place. And this was, even before talking about our solution, this was a very surprising. And we realized also that it has a lot of implications because if we realize again, the importance of blood glucose levels to our health and weight, then what it directly means is that general dietary recommendations are always, no matter what they are, going to have limited utility because for any single food that we tested, we had people who had a high response to it and, and others that had a low response. So you can't really make a general recommendation about, about food. Now, there are, there are trends. There are foods that um, lower glucose levels on average for some people, and, and, and that is known. It's what's called the glycemic index. I think you even uh, touched upon that in, in your questions. And we also saw that in the data. So whatever foods have been reported with lower glycemic index on average, they had lower responses also in our data. But if you look at all the numbers that go into making that average, they're all over the place. So there isn't a cluster around the mean. Right, exactly. It's a widespread exactly, yeah. exactly. It's very spread across. So the means are, and, and when you measure enough people, the means will be significantly different, mm. but there's a widespread across the means. Meaning that we could take uh, ice cream, for example, which on average induced relatively low glucose levels, and we can take rice, which on average induced high glucose levels, but you will still find people that respond more highly to ice cream than to rice. So it's quite surprising in those terms. So in terms of what you found or discovered drove that, you know, I know you tested for a lot of different things. So first of all, like what sort of things did you also test for in order to try and find the pattern of what was driving this? So we looked at uh, so many different things. We looked at body measures, so anthropometrics, height, weight, um, waist, uh, circumference, and so on. We looked at uh, several metabolic parameters in blood. We looked at uh, questionnaires, so we had a medical background and food frequency and lifestyle questionnaires. And uh, the most novel component that we integrated in the study is the microbiome. So we measured all of those. And, and in fact, I will say that uh, we found an association, strong correlations between variability in the response to food and, and all of these different groups of um, parameters that, that we measured. And then the, second, the next step was to take all of these parameters and uh, integrate them into kind of, you can call them rules or an algorithm that uh, basically given 
your inputs to all of these factors, which vary, vary from person to person, we would be able to predict how you would respond to each and every single food or food combination or complex meals. And, and we showed that that, uh, that actually works um, very well and predicts personalized responses with, with very high accuracy. In fact, the accuracy that we think is even feasible because even when you eat the same meal on different days, I mentioned your response is going to be very similar, but it's not going to, going to be identical. So there is some inherent biological variability and our predictive power is, is approaching that variability. Okay, great. The microbiome was the novel part of this. What, what exactly did you look at? Because there's a, there's a few different approaches to looking at the microbiome right now. What were you looking at and trying to map with it? So we looked at the most comprehensive in terms of resolution, which is just doing shotgun sequencing. So that's basically sequencing the entire content of uh, what we find in a stool sample. Uh, that mostly consists of, of bacteria, but, but this type of sequencing is, is really the highest resolution. It allows us to identify individual genes in the bacterial composition, of which there are several millions in each and every one of us. It allows us to identify not just species, but also specific strains of bacteria. And so there's many different, uh, many of these different factors that we integrated together and, uh, and use them in the algorithm. Great. Is that, by the way, is that cost prohibitive versus some of the other technologies that are used out there? So you have the 16S, which is just looking at one part, which some of the projects like Ubiome are using right now to enable them to serve many consumers and make it more a lower cost so that people can afford it right now. Are the costs much higher for what you were doing? So first of all, for 16S, I will say that uh, we didn't want to go in that direction because science-wise, I, I don't think we would have gotten as predictive power, and, and, and in fact, we even showed that to ourselves in, in the study because it doesn't have the resolution, and, and in many cases, it doesn't allow you to go below even the genus level at, uh, at bacteria. So, so you really, you know, you can have uh, the pathogenic E. coli or non-pathogenic E. coli, they'll have the identical 16S, you won't know what's in there, just to give an example. So we went for the shotgun sequencing. It is indeed much more expensive. If you talk to researchers, they'll tell you that it's uh, way, way more expensive. I will say that what we have been working in our labs for, for many years prior to the study and then as part of the study is to optimize this process uh, very extensively using uh, automation and, and uh, using robotics. And, and we've uh, substantially reduced the cost. It is still significantly more expensive than 16S, but it's... Uh, but I think our margin are, are much smaller than, than other researchers. And, and this is probably also why we were able to uh, profile at that level. Okay. All right. Great. So in terms of the microbiome, because we're talking a lot about the microbiome and the other factors, is there a stronger weighting of the variability? Is the variance associated more with the microbiome or are there some other factors that are really important? I guess the other thing that is interesting is the microbiome actually does change and we're trying to change it and improve it and so on in, in many clinical situations now. Whereas your height, age, and, and stuff like that isn't changeable. So if you could give me a bit of background on what you found is the biggest weighting there and maybe w which is most actionable. That's a very good, two very good questions. Related to what is most important. So every component that, uh, that I mentioned before, we can show that it actually has uh, significant predictive power. Now, of course, in terms of predictability, uh, predictive power, some of these components are somewhat redundant with each other. So, for example, we found that when you add the microbiome and, and some other components, then uh, we can do without all of the blood tests. And in fact, then they, we don't need them at all for the predictive power. They add, they add really something negligible. Uh, of course, we think that blood parameters are predictive. It's just that in the context of many other parameters, they're somewhat redundant because they can be explained and correlated with, uh, with with several other parameters. And so likewise with the microbiome, we found that actually unlike blood, in every context that we applied the algorithm, the microbiome always had a significant contribution to the prediction. I will say though that of course in the the microbiome has the most significant contribution when when you add it by itself. As soon as you add more and more parameters, this is expected. It's it's a marginal contribution. And, and also, I believe that this is a, an area where with additional research and, and algorithm, this is an area where we can dramatically also improve in the future. And we already have started this process because we have a lot more information and, and a lot of 
smarter ways by which we can handle this data, which is not true for, you know, BMI, weight, blood parameters, which are, you know, they're very limited in the amount of information they have. Right, right. Because there is like basically truckloads of data we're going to be taking out of our microbiomes because there's so much in there. And when we and others continue to research and identify key genes in the microbiome that are helping in the breakdown of certain products, production of different metabolites that affect us, and, and we know better how to zoom in on different features, we'll be able to improve the predictive power from it. Great, great. So in terms of the level, you mentioned that the technology you're using it goes right down to the strain level and the species and, and genus and so on. But where did you see the patterns? Is it on the genus level, the species level? Is it just one species that can like completely change how we respond? Or is it at a very high level, like bacteroides or, or something like that? Yeah, so, so the, there are significant associations actually on all levels. Okay. And I, I can say that it's not a single species that is really dominating. I mean, we actually had this, uh, it's in our paper, we have many different features from the microbiome. They each actually make a small contribution to the overall prediction, but together there's dozens of these features. And so together they make a significant contribution. Right. It's really a multifactorial analysis. Yeah. Okay. You did a, a paper before 2014 on the artificial sweeteners, which also got a, a lot of coverage because that, that was interesting also. And in that one, I believe um, it was the high bacteroides and the lower clostridialis, which showed that you were, had a higher, that was a propensity to gain weight, wasn't it? Rather than blood glucose dysregulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so we did see an overall effect there, but also there we developed an, an algorithm that could predict susceptibility in that case, to consumption of artificial sweeteners. And, and that was also multifactorial, basically using dimensionality reduction of, of essentially all the species that we had in the sample. Um, so the most recent paper you're looking at is also looking at regaining weight after dieting. For example, you go on a diet and there's this typical yo-yo effect where someone goes on a diet and they just regain it all back. And wondering why is, is that related to the microbiome or what's going on? So if you could relate what you've been looking at there and if, what we found. Yeah. So we have uh, uh, many different, uh, so, you know, we study many different aspects of the microbiome as it relates to our health. And uh, this is another study that uh, where we studied, you know, another very basic phenomenon, the yo-yo diet uh, that, that you mentioned. And what we, what we showed there is actually that even after you complete a diet and you lose weight, your microbiome doesn't go back to what it was. So, so it's very well known that as you gain weight, your microbiome changes. And what we showed is that after you lose weight, your microbiome doesn't revert back to the original state. And that uh, memory, if you will, of the microbiome is in fact sufficient to induce enhanced weight gain once you stop the diet. So I would say it's another work further establishing the causal link and, and providing more insight into mechanisms by which the microbiome plays a key role in our health and specifically uh, with respect to metabolic states and diseases, in, in this case, uh, relapsing obesity. And in, in that study, what did you find any mechanisms for what's going like? Is it specific species or I think it was, you were talking about metabolites in there as well? Yeah. So, so, so this work was uh, was in fact work in animal models. This was work in mice. And the, the advantage of is that we can really go deeper into mechanisms, uh, unlike in humans where it's much harder. And so there... We also did a metabolomic profiling, and we identified metabolites that were missing after you lose the weight. And uh, when we administered these molecules back, we, in fact, were able to cure the mice of the phenomenon of relapsing obesity. Wow. And moreover, we actually showed that these metabolites, in fact, they regulate genes in, our, in the host, in the mouse, and they regulate genes that affect uh, energy expenditure. So these mice when uh, they have less of these metabolites, which are broken down by, by bacteria, when the bacteria break them down, there's, uh, th these mice are going to have less energy expenditure and therefore more uh, weight gain. Wow. So, I mean, I guess you don't understand why that energy expenditure is going on. It's probably quite a complex, complex downstream process that follows. Right. That's quite complex. But we also, we invested, we had some insights uh, in the paper as to that as well. And we found some genes that uh, regulate that, that process in uh, uh, brown fat tissue that are directly affected by these molecules. And these molecules are made less available because the bacteria in, in mice that had a previous history of obesity, in fact, were breaking down and taking away these molecules uh, more. Wow, yeah, so, so it's, it's actually the introduction of new bacteria 
for the weight gainers, which is taking away these substrates, basically. Well, so, so in this case, it was metabolites. So there are specific metabolites that are broken down by bacteria, which we showed here. We call that postbiotics as opposed to the prebiotics. Right, by adding the bacteria that's missing or maybe taking away the ones that are causing... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those uh, can be technically more challenging to do in some cases, but in general, yes. I also want to relate to... You asked before about the stability or how much the microbiome changes, and we have several studies on that, in fact. Some, some are not even published, and what we find is, in fact, the microbiome is actually much more stable, perhaps, than most people think. So... In fact, your microbiome, unless there's a very dramatic change in health or weight, or uh, is probably going to be very stable even across many years. We have data on that. And what I mean by stable, it means that you will still look more similar to yourself even after following some dietary interventions, at least in the short term, than you will to, to other people. Now, having said that, we also found that short-term dietary interventions in fact, do change the microbiome also in consistent ways across different people. So while you'll still remain in the neighborhood of what your microbiome is, yeah. still some functions will go up, some functions will go down, and those could be consistent across people. Multiple people consume the same type of dietary intervention. Right. Just to take your kind of like takeaway from that, do you think the microbiome is going to be an important area of work, like basically learning how to modify it, push it in, a, in another direction in order to solve things like weight gain, blood glucose regulation, and things like that, do you think you, I mean, is your hope or, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. So, so the more we find causal effects for the microbiome on our health and weight, the more this should be a target for intervention. But of course, that will require further studies to understand what is causal and also how to change it. I do believe that with, uh, and this has also been shown, that with long-term changes in diet, you will in fact uh, achieve changes in the microbiome. But with short-term dietary interventions, the changes will be will be consistent, but they will be more more subtle, and you'll still remain in your own neighborhood. And, and what that means in terms of the research that we did, it means that the algorithm is going to give you essentially the same predictions, even in a very stable fashion, across even some small uh, short-term dietary interventions, because your microbiome is is essentially going to be very much the same. Right, right. So if I test one one month and I test six months later after doing a, a series of interventions, maybe not too intense. I don't know, like courses of antibiotics, things like that, maybe be more intense. Antibiotics is, is probably a different story that that can have static effects. But I'm talking about even if you change your diet and for a few months, your microbiome is not going to change a lot. If you if you maintain a very different diet after a prolonged period of time, I can't give you exact numbers, but a long time then you will see change. And, and at some point, those changes may be large enough to want, you may want to test yourself again to to kind of make some modifications to the diet. But for a very long period of time, without dramatic interventions, it should say pretty much the same. Right. Well, I mean, it might be interesting if you do do a course of antibiotics, because people have to from time to time to redo the test and, and see what it predicts afterwards. Maybe some of the food responses are going to be different. So... Absolutely. And, and I think after antibiotics, you will see, uh, you, you will have uh, very significant changes that, and those could affect the, the prediction. Yeah. So uh, last thing, I just want, just going back to the artificial sweeteners we spoke about, because you did see that those had an impact on, on the microbiome over time. Do you think smaller things like that, basically, you know, so like micronutrients or, or small fibers, not necessarily macronutrient profiles and stuff, but those kind of things could have longer term impacts on the diet? Absolutely. I would say some of them could even have bigger effects than macronutrients. So fiber, for example, is something that's digested solely by our gut bacteria, so definitely could, and this is known, will we'll have uh, uh, alterations and over time will have sustained um, effects. So yeah, absolutely. I think the way we think about it now, and even, even drugs, uh, we and others have shown that drugs that you take actually also affect your microbiome. Any, any substance that you intake, possibly all of it, depending on the substance, might uh, uh, just go through your gastrointestinal tract, meet the trillions of bacteria that are there, and, and uh, you know they have a hundred times more genes than than we do. They they could definitely um, you know break down these products. They could produce other converted into other products. There's uh, I would think of it right now. Anything that you that you intake could definitely affect your your microbiome. Yeah. All right. 
Thank you very much for that. Just a uh, last two things. Like a lot of people take xylitol and stevia and I, you know, it wasn't in your original study. I was just wondering if you knew anything about that because the other ones, uh, aspartame, saccharin, and there was another one. Sucralose. Sucralose. Yeah. It was a, it was a bit of a negative view on them in terms of what it was doing to the microbiome. Have you got any information or did you see anything on the other two? So we, we are, we are studying those, uh, now. Okay. Great. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Been really useful. Okay, great. Excellent. Okay, Lee let's talk about day two and what you're doing there. So basically, you're taking the work done by Aaron and his uh, co-researchers, and you've been turning that into this algorithm service uh, to help to optimize people's diets. Could you give me a bit of an overview how you look at it, what the company's doing, and how you see it going forward over the next year or so? Yeah, so we, we licensed the technology in an exclusive way about a year ago at the summer of 2015. And then what we've been doing since then, uh, with the help, of course, of both scientists, because they are our scientists founders and they're on the management team and very deeply involved in the company. And so there's a lot of handholding in that sense on the scientific level as well. But what we've been doing, we built a team, of course, of machine learning experts here in, the, in, in day two and also uh, developers. And we really dove into the algorithm as you heard on the research level, the first thing, you know, they took 30 metrics in the blood, you know, they did the microbiome, both 16S and a full shotgun. And what we really try to do is once we have all the results is really look into the algorithm and see what is that minimum set of features that we need, right? It's a consumer. We don't want to send them to get anything that is redundant, right? So we're looking into that features into the algorithm and looking to see what we really need, how how to commercialize this, you know? So we went through kind of a learning period when we're looking to see how we, you know, define the product. What do we need? Do we need to freeze your stool? Do we need um, to send you to a doctor to get blood tests? Yes or no? And so where we ended up is by looking at a really minimum set, because as you heard Professor Segal say, the microbiome was very significant in any constellation that they took and made other things redundant. And so really where we ended up with on the product side is that it's, uh, is that it's all online almost. So you come online and you fill in a lot of you know questionnaires, not a lot, like a 10-minute questionnaire. And of course, it has to do with your anthropometrics and your food preferences and your medical history, any information that you just fill in in your questionnaire. And then we mail home a kit, just a box. And in that box, there is a small tube and you take a stool sample at home. So we have a, we use DNA Genotech as our supplier of the kit. If you know them, they're out of Canada. This is kind of a state of the art microbiome collection kit. So you don't have to freeze it. You literally just take it when you can, you know, when you're next, when it fits you, you don't have to time it, just it's there, you take it, you mail, and then you just mail it back to us by regular mail. Is it a quick swab or are you actually taking a sample? We tested a bunch of other alternatives as well, but this company really gave us the most stabilized microbiome of uh, in extreme temperatures and really important for us to stabilize it and then send it through the mail and you don't have to freeze it and all that. So it made it much easier on the consumer side. And it's also very important scientifically to get the microbiome at the state that it was as it was collected in day zero. So we did a lot of trials specifically on that to see that what the company actually claims is actually right. And so we send you this kit, you mail it back to us, and then we sequence it. We chose uh, to sequence, as Iran said, on a full shotgun basis, because we found that that resolution right, gets us the prediction into a higher level and a, and a very good level. And so we decided to do that despite the higher cost that it has. But again, we're trying to put a product on the market that is very good. It's good scientifically. It has, we don't really cut the corners there. So although the cost is still higher, we do expect it to go down at scale, both on the full shotgun basis and the kits. And, and then what we do is give you a mobile application. So you get just your personalized mobile app that you download and it's just, you know, tailored for you. And it gives you three things initially. It gives you a microbiome report, right? Because we did it, we have it. Not all our users are going to love it, but a lot of them, you know, may be curious to open it up and see. And so there's a lot of information there. We're giving you your top food and meal recommendations. So what that means is that we really look into different categories. You have your top breakfast, your top lunch, your top dinner your top fast food, 
because even when you eat fast food once in a while, you can still choose healthier fast food than others. We're really trying to bring this into your day-to-day, right, and make little changes and not turn your world upside down. And then there's, uh, you know, whatever, alternatives with pasta, alternatives with rice. So that's really general. And, and we're really giving you your top A plus meals and scores all the way to your worst list, with, which has like a, up to a C minus. So we're trying to educate you through that stage. You could always go kind of to see what your top breakfast are, what your top lunch and all that. But then you also have uh, the ability to search. If we didn't really say something that you eat and you want to know what your score is, you just search for it in our database. In the U.S., we are based on a database of MyNet Diary. So we have like 400,000 different foods that are U.S.-based foods. In Israel, we have a different database that has Israeli foods in it, so people can really find what they eat in there. And not- Right, so these are actually branded products and stuff you can buy. Is that what you're saying? Um, or- yeah, there's a lot of branded there as well, but there's always, you know, there's also Apple without skin, right? So okay. you also get your just general food as well. But yeah, you would also find your specific brand of whatever yogurt that you're eating in, in the specific territory. And then, um, so that's the second thing. Uh, yeah, the third thing is the search and also a build your own meal kind of uh, possibility. So the whole point here is that we're not scoring nutrients, right? We're not saying carbs or protein, and we're not even going into like a family of pasta versus rice. It's very different if you eat a pasta with cream sauce or you eat a pasta with meatballs or you eat a pasta with, um, I don't know, macaroni and cheese, right? So you're going to get a score. You have to be able to score a complex meals. Mm-hmm. complex meals. And that is where kind of our secret sauce is that we're really looking at your personalized response to these complex meals. And so you can just search for those meals if you want, if you're cooking or if you're just sitting in front of a, re- in a restaurant and you're able to get your scores and, and the foods that you're eating. Yeah. So just to clarify, this is just focus on glucose management. So lowering Right. So what we aim to do is balance your blood sugar levels. So when you go on and you eat, let's say your A plus or A, you know, A minus foods, and you eat that on a consistent basis and you keep portion control, right? And so it's not the kind of a blank check to eat as much ice cream or drink as much beer as you want, unfortunately, but it does allow you some flexibility of foods that are surprising things you thought were unhealthy. All of a sudden you understand you can eat them and vice versa. So there's surprising in both ways. And then if you eat that consistently, then yes, you're going to see that we're helping you balance your blood sugar levels. And as Iran mentioned, balancing your blood sugar levels has an importance both in right minimizing the, the risk for diseases of all kinds, even when as a healthy person, you don't have diabetes, but it is really important to keep your stable blood sugar levels. And also the whole thing about weight loss, it helps you, right? It encourages weight loss in that sense. So you still, you need to have a restrictive diet. You can't eat whatever you want and, you know, think that you're going to lose weight with this, but it does help you lose weight. It helps control your hunger. It helps control your cravings. And so it really helps you do your plan and choose your foods right. That's kind of what we're aiming to do. Okay, great. Um, so just uh, to be clear, so in terms of the inputs, it's it's mostly filling in a questionnaire is there any other test apart from the microbiome sample or is that just the only one that they need to do? No, the basic thing is that we need the microbiome and we need your questionnaire. Now, if you do have additional information, if you have your HbA1c levels, then we'll be happy to take them in. If you have more blood tests, it's always good to take in, but it's not as significant enough. So we'll say you have to do it. Yeah. But on a general level, as much information as you're willing to give us, it will always help. Yes. Uh-huh. So in your algorithm, it'll t- just take that into account as well. Yeah. It's just that in terms of the cost, you didn't want to add to the cost or the inconvenience. Again, as Elon mentioned, it's, um, it's, it becomes redundant at some point. And so if you have it, great, but we don't want to get people and, and the cost is not that much for an HP1C. It's cost like, I don't know, $20 in the U S today, but so that's not really the issue. It's, it's more just, you know, this is the basic package. You send it home, you send it back. And, but as you were looking at our future products and as we interact with you throughout your day, right? So the app is going to allow you again, in future versions to report to us what you ate. And we have a lot of insight on your sleep and on your exercise. 
that was not published, but we have it in the data and they haven't published the data because in the, he didn't mention it, but in the research, they actually had people logging in their foods, but also their sleep and also their medications and also their exercise. They had a Fitbit on everyone, right? So mm -hmm. there's a lot of insights that we're going to be able to give you on when to eat your biggest meal because people have a certain rhythm and that's personalized as well. So when would it be preferred to have like a large meal of the day? Usually in the U.S. it's, it's dinner. In Israel, for example, sometimes it's lunch, sometimes it's dinner. Certain foods that you should eat at certain times of day. So we can really interact with you over time if we have more information on how you slept last night and how much fiber you had in the past 24 hours. There's a lot of things that go into the algorithm that if we don't have them, fine. But if we do, it can even help us give you better results. Right. So you're integrating these lifestyle factors as right. well into the, co the competitions to tell people when to eat and stuff. Okay, right. that's great. Your stress levels, all that. So I was wondering, so are you able to tell the status of someone? Say I have a basically a, I'm glucose intolerant to an extent already. Or when you get the data from people without getting the HbA1c, for example, are you going to be able to know, oh, this, this person's going to have to be more careful. Is that any of that kind of information coming out? We're not at any point a diagnostic company. So even, you know, whatever we see, we will not tell you. Ah, okay. We don't do health assessments on you. We're giving you your recommendations under a predictive model. Mm -hmm. And so if we, for example, find things that we think you should know, we would probably say, you know, maybe you should see your doctor or, you know, take these results to your doctor or something like that. We would never go into actually giving you any medical advice or... Right, right. The same usual thing. There's a lot of blood glucose dysregulation that goes on bef way before you get to diabetes, as Aaron was saying also. Uh, so I'm just a little interested from an uh, algorithm perspective. I know you're not going to publish it because of the, the medical uh, borderline there. You don't want to go near. Um, but I was just interested from an algorithm perspective. Can it kind of tell how far we are along that line? Because everyone's got a little bit of intolerance, I guess, these days. I'm just curious. Does it, does it offer any information? I can't. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. That's <laughs> that question. But right. as Iran mentioned, we're looking into on the roadmap for day two. That's not maybe interesting for the people who want to buy it right now. But we are looking into various things we can do with the data that we have and the data that we collect and things that we learn. And of course, diagnostics and therapeutics are part of that whole agenda. And so there's insights that we're looking into and, and collecting and can very well come out with additional products as well that are related so as a first stage, it's basically a, a food recommendation. Engine is the output and, of course, your own, your data. Um, so your microbiome data, what it's been seen. Do you have an idea of what type of microbiome data is going to be given? I know we talked about Ubiome, for instance, in the past. Uh, we had Rob Knight, of course, from so many other tests. We've looked at a few different ones in the past. Have you got an idea yet or, I don't know, pictures or anything of what it's going to look like in terms of the kind of data you provide for the microbiome? Um, I can I can definitely look up go back and in and send you some information about you know how it's going to look more or less. Okay, sure. All right, cool. But we're we're trying to go into into a lot of detail. Again, we're doing full shotguns, so we have additional insights, and you know we're not at a very just high level. We are looking into specific types of bacteria and trying to link them. You know, we're looking at studies and just general information about them. Again, we're going to be a little bit careful and not telling you anything that you may be alarmed with or you think that, you know, if you have this, then you're going to be type 2 or anything like that. So, of course, we're, we're being careful in the way we present it. But there's a lot of interesting information. We're also looking to do this in a very cool way that's going to be, at least on the web, on the mobile, it's going to be a little bit flatter. But when you sign into your web, it's a report that's going to be very interactive. So you kind of dive in and you go, you know, all the way down to the strain level and you can come up. And so it's going to be really cool in that sense. Yeah. So is it going to be, so basically are you going to give all of that data? My audience tend to be on the high quant side. So some of them tend to be people who download the data and start playing around with it in Excel and stuff. So just what, will you have that kind of, with you, Byron, for example, they have, they have, for example, kind of two aspects of that. They have the raw data they provide with you to download, and then you can put it into software and stuff to actually interpret yourself, like a bioinformatician software. And then they give you graphs and stuff, which is basically summarized, you know, so there's not all of the information there. It's a bit different and it's according to their perspective. So in comparison, what will you provide? 
Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know to tell you that we're going to give you all the raw data. I mean, we probably could, but we haven't finalized, you know, that down to the core of it. But again, we have it. So we're going to have, as I said, the report and the very interactive tool. So you can kind of explore it in a very, I would say, in the infographic, it's, it's really cool. People are just playing here with it when they're too tired to code. So they go and start planning that, but uh, we could also provide the raw data for sure. So, I mean, again, I think our users, as opposed to Ubiom users, Ubiom users are mainly people who, well, they purchased it because they were curious about the microbiome. Our users, most of them, if I need to kind of guess or what I see, the microbiome is what gets them to say, oh, this is really interesting. This is personalized for me. I have my personalized microbiome. These people are scientific based. It's not just something that, you know, somebody came up with a diet based on my blood types. There's, there's science here. I don't think that a lot of them are going to be very interested in, down, in downloading the FASTQ or like the file of yeah, yeah. the microbiome the and yeah. uh, things with it. But we could definitely allow that, you know, allow for people to do that if we see that there's a need for that from our users. Yeah, cool. All right. I saw there was a mention of the Mayo study on your site. Where did you see that mentioned, by the way? I'm trying to figure out how did that get to you? Was, uh, we didn't publish. Well, I didn't know. I don't think there was just Hello? a mint. Oh, so I know where I found it. I was looking for your fact and there were some directions for Mayo study people, like on how to find the information. Uh, <laughs> There's a leak there. <laughs> leak there. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not a secret by far. I mean, we are we're recruiting people in the Mayo Clinic now, so and day two is all over there. So it's by no. Uh, we just didn't uh, issue the press release saying that yet, but that's been approved and it's on its way as well. So uh, what we're doing, I'm happy to share. It's no, it's no secret. But what we're doing uh, with the Mayo Clinic is a clinical trial that is very similar to the clinical trial that we've done in Israel. So that the Weizmann Institute has done in Israel. And so we're, we're recruiting 500 people and going through the same process of putting exactly the same device that was used in the trial in Israel and giving them test foods that are American foods or like a bagel and cereal and really having them log their foods and providing that all that information and a lot of blood tests. And so we're really replicating the trial and we're just going to do that because we wanted to make sure we're providing recommendations after we got, we have a cohort, a basic cohort of, of U.S. people. It doesn't have to be the entire 500 completed, but we just, you know, as the Israeli one was all Israeli, with Israeli microbiome and Israeli food, we just wanted to make sure that we're able to calibrate the algorithm. And it also works on U.S.-based population with U.S. foods and all that. And so we've already kicked that off. It's a great collaboration for us, right, to do this with the Mayo Clinic obviously. And so we've already connected people. If any of your users are, you know, Rochester or Minnesota based people, they can go and be part of that clinical trial. Right. And it'll be literally kind of like a copy of the other study. So they could have a look at the other study to see what it would entail as well. Right. But yeah, and there's a bit of you know, information there as well. And so that's the reason we're doing that. And also to start a great collaboration with the Mayo Clinic for other things as well. Great. Do you have some kind of timeline for that? in terms of when you might get results eventually? The timeline for US, I mean, it's open for pre-order. I don't know, uh, you probably entered through the UK, so you didn't see that because it's IP-based. But if you were in the US, you would see a pre-order. If you're in Israel, you can also buy and start getting it. So we started selling in Israel already. Israel, US is, based, is open on a pre-order basis, and we're gonna start shipping kits out to people in the beginning of 2017. Okay. It's just around the quarter. Okay. So there's people already using this service in, in Israel. It's, it's functioning. In Israel, we've started the whole process of getting the evaluation, the kits out to people and getting them back and sequencing them. And we're just starting to get, we're in the final stage of getting the application finalized and then getting the recommendations for people. But there's a lot of people already who are using it because they got the recommendations whether from the Weizmann Institute uh, study or through us, they're not using the fancy application with, you know, the build your own meal, but the results and all that have been around and have been used. Actually, the BBC had a great show. I don't know if you've seen it. No. The BBC, the, the, there's a show called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. 
I, I don't, I don't, I haven't watched TV here, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, okay. So anyway, trust me, I'm a doctor. It's a doctor that has a show and she features trials, clinical trials. And so she actually participates in the clinical trials that she features on her show. So she, after the publication in Cell, she came to, she approached the scientist and she came to Israel with her colleague and was profiled and went through it, got food recommendations, went back home, only read what, you know, only ate what she was supposed to eat, lost weight, felt great, energy levels. She was all psyched about it and featured it on the BBC in a great show. I'll send you the links. So if you want, you can see them. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, so there's a lot of people who are using it, but outside of the clinical trial setting as well. Okay, great. Yeah. So it's already getting, getting run and it's getting um, contracts. Yeah. I mean, we see the, the results are, are there. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of uh, just how it's going to be available, you're only shipping to the US. Is that because, like, uh, so Europe, just, no one in Europe is going to be able to like do this, or not? Well, not soon. We get a lot of approach on our support after the show was aired. There was like ten thousand people hitting the website, uh, you know. So we know that there's a lot of people interested, and we really want to go into you know selling it in the UK as well. We're just trying to be. Being a startup and, you know, not to jump too far ahead. So One thing at a time. Right. Yeah. So we did Israel because, you know, otherwise people will kill us here if we don't bring it home. But we even we didn't even translate it into Hebrew. So it's sold in English, you know, really. And so in the U.S. we're opening because it's it's just an important market to start in. But we have concrete plans to get into Europe in 2017. So soon, at least in the English speaking countries. I mean, really logistically, it just means that we need to get this box to people, but it's not that simple. We will need a local database of foods. So there's some, you know, work on the server side to give you your foods and your, uh, the database that fits you. We don't think we're probably going to need a trial to do that. So, I mean, in terms of microbiome, what we see is that the changes are not that. So there's changes in the territories in the microbiome, but they're probably not that apart compared to where the recommendations are. So you and I are very different in the way the algorithm predicts for us. The microbiome is different, but it's not that different. So anyway, it works right. on people. It could work on the US even without the Mayo probably trial. So, so it's, yeah, it sounds like that's a validation effort. Right, exactly. I haven't looked at um, studies of comparison of different countries and their microbiomes. There are some you, I mean, there are, if you look at the cell paper, I think that they have their graph there. So they show kind of the U.S. and there's overlaps between U.S., Europe, Israel, and there's differences as well. But the differences when the way, I guess, the, it reflects it in the algorithm is not that significant. Right. So it works. Do you know when the Mayo uh, trial is going to, like, how long that's going on for? Oh, the Mayo, the Mayo trial will take a while, but we don't need to continue to complete the trial before we're able to give recommendations. So, you know, we just need to validate it in a smaller group, but we're there collecting data. That is mostly, it's more, you know, in the U.S., you can't put a continuous glucose monitor on people at all if you're not diabetic, except under an IRB kind of trial setting. So we can't, on a consumer level, we couldn't find any provider that would allow us to put continuous glucose monitors on healthy human beings without, you know, prescriptions and without being, it's a diabetic label from the FDA. So we don't have the device. And in order to really collect that data in the U.S., we need to have a clinical trial set up and get the appropriate IRB and all that. So part of the whole doing of the Mayo Clinic is because we just want more data, relevant data. It's data with glucomid, glucose monitors and, and logging of foods. And so we don't need that to continue to, oper to uh, start operating. I don't even want to stop it after 500. So we're talking about opening Arizona as a site and opening Florida as a site. It's really good just for our internal research purposes to continue to get more data. And one quick question. I've noticed that Arizona comes up a lot in uh, lab testing. I'm just wondering, as you brought it up just then, is there any reason? Because Mayo has a site there. So I'm saying I'm, uh, the, when I'm collaborating with Mayo Clinic, 
they have additional sites other than Rochester, Minnesota. And so they're thinking of expanding us to there. And I'm more than happy to get yeah. more data. It's, I was just on holiday in Arizona. And I just uh, I just noticed that there's a lot of lab testing companies there. And it seems it's probably flexible. due to, you know, relevant manpower and cheap and something. Yeah. I think like there's some, maybe some state really regulations or something that make it a little bit easier. Um, something like that also. Yeah. But again, when you sell outside of Arizona, then you're going to have to do the state, you know, comply with the state laws anyway. So I'm not sure if that's going to help you, but I don't really know. So right now for the U.S., uh, is it $299 for the pre-order? Um, the price is going to be $399, but we're opening up on $299 at uh, pre-order, kind of a discount. But once we stop pre-ordering, we're probably going to go up to $399. In Israel, it's $500. But we're also doing uh, like a premium product in Israel. We're giving uh, continuous glucose monitors to people in Israel. So we're giving them a fancy report on their blood sugar levels and all kinds of other stuff. Wow. Because we can, because the device that I talked about in Israel, you can put it on humans that are not sick. Right. So, wow, that sounds like quite a service. Someone would pay, what, a thousand, a thousand dollars or more and... No, no, 500. Oh, and they're getting that premium service with the glucose monitor? And they get, yeah, it's a lot, $500. So it, it's just more expensive than the U.S. because of the because of the continuous glucose monitor right. that we're putting on. Well, they're quite expensive, those things. Well, they cost a few hundreds of, I guess, in the, U, in the U.K., it's, I think, 80 euros. And then the reader and then the patch costs a little bit more. It's just, well, because I looked into getting one for myself, not for medical reasons, just to play around with. And the Dexcom so is... Abbott Freestyle. Oh, just take the Abbott Freestyle Libre. Freestyle? Just look okay. for it. Freestyle Libre and then uh, just order it online. And I think it costs like 100 euros or something. Okay. And it's got consumables and, and stuff that aren't too... And then you have a patch. Yeah. You get a, a round patch that you put for two weeks. It's good for okay. two weeks. And you have a reader. And this is the one Aaron was talking about earlier that they're gonna, they've started using. Right, right, right. So you can get that online. I mean, we bought a bunch of them online ourselves in the UK uh, before we found it in Israel. And then once it, we found it here in Israel, then we decided to go with this product that we can also collect from people their blood sugar management and give them, uh, you know, those fancy reports and all that. So it's cool. Yeah. So it's, it sounds quite exciting what you're doing in Israel because you've got that more flexibility there. So are you publishing anything maybe a bit later about that on your customer base or? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is there anything we haven't covered about the service that we've missed? Yeah, I think that this is kind of our direct-to-consumer approach, right? So we're selling to you directly. But what we're really working on mm -hmm. is partnerships. Because what we really believe is that the way you're going to use this is also very personalized. Some people, the fact that we give them a fancy application that's really cool and has a report on it and teaches them what to eat and what not to eat, and allows them, there's going to be a diet planner at some point on this, right? So you can really be independent in the way you manage your food. Some people, that's going to be great for them, but some people really need more support. So maybe they go to, you know, Weight Watchers or they go to, you know, they use other weight management services. And once you know, as a user, that there's specific recommendations for you that are personalized for you, you really can't tolerate generalized information anymore. I'm saying this on myself, right? I go to this Weight Watchers group. It's not Weight Watchers, it's a local Israeli group. But, you know, I can't hear her say to me, you should eat pretzels as a snack. 100 calories of pretzels are your snack. I've been doing that for 15 years. And then I found that it was my number one spiking <laughs> snack. <laughs> and I moved to a different, totally different corn-based snack that was much better for me if I'm eating that, you know, 100 calorie snack already. So I'm snacking on that. And what we're thinking of doing is really opening an API with a lot of services. And so you as a user can share your information with your doctor or with your nutritionist or with your weight management group, or when you take out food, right? You want to be able to get a score. So you, you could plug you into log a in, connect meal delivery you, site. Right. Think of this. Let's say you're ordering takeout of your food. We do this every day at lunch. That's just how in Israel high-tech scene works. And so, you know, I want to log in, connect with my day two account into that service and then get a menu and get my score, A, B, 
choose my, I'm already in a great restaurant, I'm eating food or I'm taking them out, I wanna be able to get a score, choose right. In the US specifically, there's a lot of employer wellness programs. All those wellness programs provide nutritional advice, but it's generalized. I, as a user, I want my personalized advice to go with me, right? So that's kind of the partnerships that we're doing. Some spark, I mean, some will bring us customers, some we will bring our customers to them, and we're building a marketplace around us. So literally think of that, that we're not competing with anyone. That's kind of the strategy that we build. We want to enable anybody who wants to use this personalized service to use it in their applications and services. Great to make that information more widely available. Lihi sounds great. I'm sure there's insurance companies and so on will be interested in that as well. I know they're getting getting more interested in these wellness programs. Of course. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time today. I uh, really appreciated it. Sure. Thank you so much. To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.